2: Okay, Molly, what do you see there?
3: Well, it's a box of sand under glass.
2: Yeah, but look closer.
3: Okay, hills of sand. It's kind of a meditative sandscape. Is this a Zen thing?
2: No, unless your Zen garden has ants, and after all, it may do. But this is an ant farm. Oh,
3: yeah, I've heard of ant farms. What do they farm?
2: Some of them farm fungus, but mostly they're just storing food. You sure
3: that's enough room for them? And besides, how thick is that glass? Because, Seth, we don't want ants all
2: over the studio. Well, don't worry about it, because the glass is thick enough. And it's also, by the way, good ant habitat. I mean... Think about it. What do ants really need? I mean, you need enough room to store some food. You need some place to incubate your eggs. What else do you need to survive? Well, most life requires liquid water. In fact, all life does, and they've got that here. And those food stores, well, something they can just break down for energy. They've got to eat. The ants here, they've got it made in the shade, or rather in this glass box, they've got it made.
3: Also to be a perfect ant habitat, the temperature it can't ant be too cold or too hot, right?
2: Uh, Right, yeah. I I mean, if you threw your ant farm in the oven and baked it at 350 degrees, you might have some warm sand, but not warm ants. You just have tiny little toasted corpses.
3: (laughs) That's kind of twisted, Seth. But hey, don't stop thinking like that, because author Stephen King will expound on that very idea, something like it, later on the show.
2: What? What it feels like to be a cooked ant? Is he king of the ant hill or something? Something like that. I'm Molly Bentley. I'm Seth Shostak. Yes, Stephen King. Also, the argument for keeping sharks and other big fish in aquariums. Plus, natural habitats for life off this planet. Now, the conditions need to be right. But what does that mean when in the last dozen years we've discovered life, mostly bacteria, living in truly extreme environments? At the edges of the Antarctic ice sheet, At the bottom of the sea in hydrothermal vents. And even in jet fuel. So, life can be happy in extreme conditions on Earth, which gives us a bit of incentive and some guidance for looking for life off this planet.
3: Yes, in places that are, to us, different, strangely different.
2: (inaudible) Wait, wait, Seth, why don't you just play the theme? Well, we don't have the rights to the original orchestration. Mm. You
4: are about to enter another dimension. It is a dimension in space and of time. where temperature and relative oxygen content push the boundaries of what we know on Earth. A journey to a wondrous land where man may not survive, but bacteria thrive. It's an area we call the habitable zone.
5: Hi, I'm Jim Casting. I'm a distinguished professor of geosciences at Penn State University.
2: Jim, your book is entitled How to Find a Habitable Planet. Uh, Maybe you can tell me what makes a planet habitable.
5: Well, it we argue a little bit amongst ourselves as to what makes a planet habitable, because we don't really know the definition of life. But for the sake of the book, we're looking for carbon-based life that requires liquid water. So surface liquid water is a requirement.
2: Uh, There's a well-known concept that you've helped to make well-known, and that's the habitable zone. What what is the habitable zone?
5: Well, the habitable zone around a star, sometimes called the circumstellar habitable zone, is the region where a planet can maintain liquid water on its surface. And it goes from somewhere outside the orbit of Venus to roughly the orbit of Mars in our solar system. Mars doesn't have liquid water on its surface, but that's because it has a thin atmosphere and not enough greenhouse effect. If it had a thick CO2 atmosphere, it might actually be habitable. So we think we may actually be underestimating the width of the habitable zone.
2: Well, some of our listeners may be aware that there are some uh, moons of the outer solar system around Jupiter, around Saturn, that seem to have uh, liquid water could have liquid water, and uh, since liquid water seems to be the fundamental requirement for being considered habitable, uh, the, these moons might be habitable, and yet they're far outside what you've just defined as the habitable zone. How how do we encompass those kinds of worlds?
5: That's right. Uh, so Jupiter's moon Europa, we're pretty sure, has a subsurface ocean. Mars may have—well, uh, Mars is probably within the habitable zone, but it may have subsurface liquid water— Planets with subsurface liquid water are interesting if they're in our solar system because we can go there and potentially explore them. But the life, if there is life on either Mars or on Europa, it's subsurface, it doesn't modify the planet's atmosphere in a way that can be remotely detected. So we wouldn't be able to tell this on a planet around another star.
2: So the definition of the habitable zone has uh, some sort of pragmatic component to it. In other words, it's got to be habitable and in a way that we can detect from great distance.
5: That's right. This concept is really meant to be applied to planets around other stars. And the, the life has to be on the surface for two reasons. One, it puts it in contact with the atmosphere, but secondly, it allows uh, for photosynthesis where life you know, can use light from the star to drive its metabolism and, uh, to fix carbon, and that, that allows life to become much more abundant and to have more chance of modifying the planet's atmosphere.
2: Jim, have we found any planets around other stars that are in their habitable zones?
5: Yes, we have actually found lots of planets that are within the habitable zones of other stars. Something like 20% of the planets, the last time I looked, that we found are within their habitable zones. The problem is they're all gas giant planets, and gas giant planets like Jupiter or Saturn, planets like that are not good candidates for life because there's no solid or liquid surface on which life could get a foothold. And therefore an organism either could be wafted up to the cold fringes at the top of the atmosphere or wafted down into the very hot interior. It's very unlikely uh, you could have life.
2: Your book title implies you know how to find planets, habitable planets, But aren't astronomers busy doing that? I'm thinking of the the NASA-Kepler mission here, which is looking for Earth-like worlds, and within the next uh, three years, presumably, will either find them or tell us the dismaying news that there aren't many out there. Uh, how, How can we find them in a way that isn't being done?
5: Well, Kepler is very exciting. It's the most exciting thing going on right now from my perspective. It's staring at a patch of stars just outside the main band of the Milky Way, and it's looking for transits. It's looking for Earth-like planets passing in front of their stars, and they would cause those stars to dim a little bit. So the good news, as you just said, is that Kepler may tell us how often Earth-like planets occur. The bad news is that all of the stars that Kepler is looking at, almost all of them are very far away, and there's little or no chance of following up on those observations and finding out whether any of them are really like Earth.
2: All right, suppose we find a habitable planet. How do we take the next step? What's the first thing you would do to find the inhabitants?
5: Well, what we really want to do is not just find them, but we want to study their atmospheres spectroscopically. So spectroscopy is breaking light down into its component wavelengths, just like a rainbow you get the multicolors of the rainbow. Those are different wavelengths of light. So we want to get light from the planet, separate that from the star, and then break it down into its component wavelengths and look for absorption bands of things like O2, which we've already talked about may be a signature of life.
2: Jim Casting, thank you so much for talking with me.
5: Okay. enjoyed it.
3: It's an ambitious DIY, that's do-it-yourself, book, How to Find a Habitable Planet, and it's by Jim Casting, a geoscientist at Penn State University.
2: Okay, if we restrict ourselves to the local offerings, squaring off as contenders for hosting life elsewhere in the solar system, weighing in at 100,000 trillion tons and only 500 kilometers in diameter smaller than the moon of Earth in this corner, Saturn's moon Enceladus. And in the opposite corner, the
3: ice-covered moon of Jupiter weighing in at 10 million trillion tons,
2: Europa. And in the corner, in between... Wait, Seth, that's three corners. Well, a ring has four. (laughs) Why do they call it a ring? The heavyweight champion of the place most favored to harbor life elsewhere in the solar system, boasting an atmosphere 100 times thinner than Earth's, that rusty, dusty, planetary runt, Mars!
3: (laughs) Okay, those are some impressive participants. First, let's see what Saturn's satellite Enceladus has to offer. Geothermal activity seems to be the moon's strength planetary scientist Amanda Hendricks.
0: Enceladus is interesting because it's so bright, it's so reflective, and that tells us something is going on there, maybe, because we know that generally, as time goes by, bodies in the solar system tend to accumulate gunk and grime and dirt and get a little bit darker, because there's a lot of dark stuff out in the solar system, too. And so for a body to be bright, that means that maybe there's some sort of renewal process of the surface that's happening to keep it bright with fresh ice.
2: OK, so when was the, the big discovery that there was something really dramatic going
0: on with this moon? In July of 2005. That was when Cassini executed the second targeted flyby of Enceladus.
2: Cassini, of course, being the NASA spacecraft that's been hanging around the Saturnian system for many years now.
0: We had hints, actually, from earlier close passes with Enceladus. Some of the fields and particles instruments on Cassini were detecting some sort of strange perturbance by Enceladus of the um, surrounding magnetic field of Saturn. So we had some hints that something funny was going on, but you couldn't see anything in the images that looked particularly anomalous.
2: So, okay, you had these hints that there was something uh, dramatic going on, but uh, didn't you actually see something?
0: And this was a flyby that we made where we got very good views of the South Pole. The South Pole was hot. That was crazy because they expected that the part of the surface right below the sun, the subsolar point that's getting the most input from the sun, would be the hottest point and that wasn't the case at all. Instead, it was the South Pole.
2: What happened next?
0: Well, on that same flyby, the ultraviolet instrument performed what we call a stellar occultation. And so we watch a star pass behind Enceladus, and this is a very sensitive method for measuring atmospheres. And we didn't know if Enceladus would have any gas surrounding it, but sure enough, that occultation experiment showed us that there is gas and that it was concentrated at the South Pole.
2: Well, eventually, you actually got a picture of this South Polar region that, uh, that showed you what you were measuring indirectly, right?
0: Right. So the funny thing is, is that we had all of these indications that there was activity at the south pole of Enceladus, some sort of a plume, but we hadn't actually seen it yet with the cameras. And so it wasn't until November of 2005 that we really nailed it with the images and see the plumes. Because it's hard to see. If you're just looking at water vapor, you can't see it if you're looking at smoke it's hard to see it sometimes unless you're seeing it backlit for instance and so that was the kind of viewing geometry that we needed to get
2: you saw geysers coming off the south polar region of this small moon around saturn
0: the plumes are mostly water vapor and ice particles, water ice particles.
2: Okay. But is there any indication that there's any liquid water you know, right. un- under the surface of Enceladus? Because right. after all, if you're, if you're a microbe or any other kind of life, I suppose you want liquid water, not ice.
0: We can't say for sure that there's liquid water, but all of the evidence that we're getting, and as we take more and more data, it really seems to be pointing us in that direction. So recently we found that at the South Pole is even hotter than we originally thought it was, and what we can tell is that to produce these plumes and to produce the water vapor and the water particles it is very likely that a source of liquid water below the surface is needed. So there could be some sort of a reservoir of liquid water below that icy shell.
2: If you had to bet about life in our solar system and you had to choose between maybe Mars, maybe Enceladus, what would be your choice?
0: Mm. Well, I am a fan of moons in the solar system. I think I'd prefer Enceladus. And what I wanted to say is that you know Enceladus is basically bringing us the evidence. We don't have to go digging right now. All we have to do is fly through the plume, keep observing it, even from afar. And we're gaining evidence about Enceladus and about this strange world that could be telling us something about the evolution of life in our solar system and elsewhere.
2: Amanda Hendricks, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Seth. Okay, so Enceladus has geothermal
5: activity
3: and icy plumes of water vapor, a strong contender for life off Earth.
2: Well, that's a good showing for a tiny moon so far from the sun, but planetary scientist Bob Pappalardo is laying his bets elsewhere.
6: I like to think that the best possibility for finding life close to Earth is at Jupiter's moon Europa, a place where we think there's a subsurface ocean and potentially the ingredients for life.
2: Well, you know, when Galileo discovered Europa back uh, a little over 400 years ago now, uh, you know, all he saw was a little dot in the sky. He might have just assumed it was a moon like our own moon, you know, a bunch of craters, uh, some dry areas, hot and cold, nothing very interesting. Describe what it would be like if we were to take a trip to Europa and
6: sort of be orbiting that moon. What would we see? Well, the Voyager spacecraft saw Europa from somewhat of a distance and saw a strange lined surface like a cracked eggshell or or like looking at uh, an eyeball. And the Galileo spacecraft was able to examine Europa closer up, seeing a crisscrossing pattern of ridges and grooves. There are areas that look chaotic and broken up like something has come up from below and disrupted the surface. It's a bizarre place. It's not heavily cratered like Earth's moon. It's a very alien-looking landscape. By definition, I would say it's alien. But, but, I mean, we're not looking at rock when we look at the surface of Europa. That's right. We're looking at frozen water. We're looking at ice, ice that's as hard as rock because it's so cold out there at Jupiter. Okay,
2: so we see the size. Now, you mentioned that while there were a few craters here and there, this is not a pockmarked moon. And that tells you, as you suggested, that something is sort of
6: refreshing the makeup on this satellite of Jupiter. What could that be? We don't have direct evidence that Europa is active today, but we suspect it because Europa doesn't have too many craters. Something has somehow paved over the craters or destroyed the craters. So this process of making ridges and grooves and, and these broader bands on Europa's surface must destroy the older surface somehow. And the spots, these mottled areas, may be places where the surface has literally melted. They may be related to warm ice flowing in the floating ice shell of Europa, and like a lava lamp coming up to the surface, and that warm ice somehow repaves the surface. And in understanding how this place works, we'll better understand whether it's potentially uh, habitable for life. Well, life
2: doesn't really like to live in very solid ice, I mean. <laughs> but presumably, you say there's something warm underneath this icy shell, this icy carapace around Europa.
6: If we were to dig a hole into that ice, uh, how deep would we have to go before we hit the warm stuff? Uh, I think the best estimates are something like 20 kilometers, what's that, 13 miles or so. So the life presumably is in the the liquid water part of this moon. There's a lot of liquid
2: water, but it's awfully dark down there. I mean, you know, how do you make a living if you're a European?
6: Well, there are many places on Earth where organisms live on chemical reactions that do not involve sunlight. So photosynthesis, we're used to life being powered by photosynthesis or life like us being powered by eating other life and eating other organic matter. But we're talking about life that might live off very simple chemical reactions in the ocean or maybe at the ice-ocean interface there or maybe at the bottom where the ocean contacts that warm rock. So a big question about whether Europa could possibly have life is whether there is this chemical imbalance in that ocean the kind of chemical imbalance that life could use to get by, to synthesize uh, simple organic compounds.
2: Well, this sounds like it could be encouraging. We have a lot of water out there, it seems, and maybe some food source. We send a lot of spacecraft to Mars to look for the kind of telltale signs that Mars is inhabited now or once was inhabited. What about Europa? What are we going to do to try and answer the question, are there Europans?
6: Well, an initial mission to Europa would be an orbiter, and that's what we're planning, to do the first full reconnaissance of this moon, to understand the processes that shape it, to confirm that there's an ocean there, to try to find water within that ice shell using radar that penetrates right through the ice and would bounce off water and back to the spacecraft. It'll ultimately take a mission that lands on the surface of Europa to dig down below that top layer that's where organic materials be destroyed by radiation to get down a meter or so and look at that dark reddish stuff and see if there's anything in there, if there are direct or indirect signs of life in that ice. Bob Pappalardo, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you, Seth.
3: Okay, a subsurface ocean on Europa, that's pretty hard to beat. Europa and Enceladus, both very strong contenders for the best habitat for alien life, but their rival may have them beat.
2: Last but not least... Hold it, Molly. We're going to milk the most of the suspense here by using that tried-and-true and even cheap method of the media. We're taking a break.
3: It's Are We Alone, habitats not for humanity.
2: This episode is presented by Chemists in the Kitchen by LabX a YouTube video series spotlighting the power of chemistry and how science and food can bring people together. In each episode, real scientists walk you through things like making your own cheese at home, the chemistry behind soufflés, methods for botanical infusions, the formula for perfect deep-fried chicken, and much more. It's a love letter to science, cooking, and individuality, with some great tips on how you can apply real scientific principles to your everyday cooking. Plus, it's just a lot of fun. Season 3 is airing right now, and you can catch up with every episode for free on YouTube by searching Chemists in the Kitchen or going to YouTube.com slash LabXNAS. That's YouTube.com slash LabXNAS. Welcome back to Are We Alone?, Later in the program, author Stephen King on alien habitats on Earth. But now, Molly, please continue with the third contender for the place most likely to harbor life off of Earth.
0: I am the Martian ambassador. We come in peace.
3: We come in they may have come from Mars, but journalist Oliver Morton is an Earthling.
4: The thing that's been appealing about Mars as a place to find life is it's actually a place that we can see and we can see it as a place. I mean, it's the only other planet where you can actually see surface features from the Earth. And that's why we imagined people living on it and building canals. And it's the fact that it's nearby that still makes it very promising because you can imagine actually doing the sort of investigations that would find possibly fairly cryptic hidden life on Mars, in a way you can't imagine doing it further away.
3: What about the competition that Mars is getting from the moons in the outer solar system, such as Europa and Enceladus?
4: Well, uh, Europa and Enceladus probably have liquid water. And that's good. But there's evidence for liquid water near the surface of Mars. And there's every reason to think that there's liquid water at some level within the crust of Mars. So you might be a bit of a wash there. But there's one thing that Mars has that may or may not help, but certainly is relevant. Mars is quite close to a planet which we know has a lot of life, which is the Earth. And we know that meteorites come from Mars to the Earth. And we know by implication that meteorites go from the Earth to Mars, though slightly less common. So in the early history of the solar system, there would have been meteorites being knocked off the Earth with life on it going to Mars. So we can say almost certainly that Earth microbes have been sent to Mars billions of years ago. And you can't say that, in fact, for Enceladus or for Europa.
3: So there's possible that there are or were Earthlings on Mars in the same way that there might be Martians here on Earth.
4: Indeed, or we may all be the same thing. We may just be cousins. Okay, um,
3: but if you had to rank them... Mars, Enceladus, and Europa?
4: Oh, if I had to rank them, I would rank them Mars first. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One is that I think that Mars could have had photosynthetic life on it, life that uses sunlight. And I think that the relics, that that would have allowed life to spread around the planet. I think Mars is probably pretty dead, but I think that it has a good chance of relics. But the other thing is Mars is a place you can imagine doing sort of fairly thorough studies to try and find it, whereas anything we do on Europa or Enceladus is going to be pretty much smash and grab.
3: You mentioned water, and and you also mentioned photosynthesis, which needs water. We know that there is water in the form of ice at the Mm -hmm. poles of Mars. Mm -hmm. What else do we know about water in Mars?
4: We see clear evidence of large floods in the Martian past. And more recently, we've seen all sorts of geological environments on Mars that clearly involve the work of water, you can see delta formations. So Mars may never have been really warm and wet, but it was probably less cold and less dry at various times in its history. And so you could imagine surface environments on Mars may be fleeting ones, but you could imagine surface environments on Mars that might have supported life. The other thing, bear in mind, is that the other thing we know about, one of the things we know about Mars, one of the things very obvious, is that it's got an awful lot of craters because it sits there on the edge of the asteroid belt and it gets knocked around a bit. And every time you hit Mars with a even moderate-sized asteroid, you're going to melt any ice in the subsurface. So you also know that there will be liquid water from time to time all around Mars.
3: So the idea is if there is life on Mars now, not in the past, if yeah. there is now, is it underground?
4: Probably. If I was on Mars, I would want to be underground because the surface is really quite unpleasant. It's sort of like covered with UV light, and the surface, we know, is quite dry because it's very low atmospheric pressure, so any liquid water there is there will kind of evaporate. We know there's water vapor in the atmosphere. So, yeah, the surface of Mars is not a good place.
3: If you were a Martian microbe and you said you would prefer to live under the ground, what would you be doing there?
4: Not a great deal. I mean, by and large, microbial life isn't very... Dramatic.
3: And you're cut off from the sun.
4: Here's one of the things you might be doing. You might be taking a little bit of hydrogen and a little bit of carbon dioxide, putting them together, making a little bit of methane, getting a little bit of energy. And that's an interesting story because A, that's something that microbes deep in the Earth's surface do. And B, we have recently seen what seems to be evidence of methane being produced at or under the surface of Mars. And on Earth, methane is normally produced by little microbes doesn't mean the Martian methane net is necessarily produced by microbes, but it makes Mars look a bit more inhabited than it did before.
3: So, Oliver, how do we detect it? How do we detect life on Mars if it is there now?
4: It's going to be hard, though, again, it's going to be a lot easier than detecting it on uh, Europa or Enceladus, I'd say.
3: Is the methane... Key to the, the methane, puzzle, if you could detect it?
4: If you could detect where the is methane it. was coming from, mm-hmm. or if it was methane, you might know a lot. On Earth, you can actually tell whether methane is being produced biologically or abiotically by the isotope balance. But that involves knowing quite a lot about the life that's going on. It's not clear that picking up a, an isotope signal in the methane on Mars would necessarily mean it. But you could imagine that if the methane on Mars has really wild isotopes, that then you might think, yeah, there's something going on. Otherwise, you're probably going to have to drill, and that's going to be hard. And another way that I've always thought would be kind of fun to do it would be to engineer an asteroid hit, not even a very big one. But if you hit Mars with an asteroid big enough to melt a lot of water, and you were watching quite carefully what happened, that might tell you something about whether there's any life in the subsurface.
3: That's part of your smash and grab.
4: That's part that of my that, – that, that's so fairly much. serious smash and grab. Yeah, that's, mm-hmm. that is, I must admit, something like planetary assault and battery. Mm -hmm. Um,
3: But otherwise, maybe we land a rover, one that can drill pretty far down. Yeah, that's the problem. Mm -hmm. It's
4: really difficult technology. So you could imagine that you could drill a hole and there could be a whole bunch of microbes having a party next hole along. But that's the hole you didn't drill. You're in the hole you did drill. So finding life on Mars, if there is life on Mars, is likely to be very difficult. The other thing you could do, actually, that might be quite helpful, have a look at the ice caps, especially the North Polar ice cap. Because if life sort of like ever gets flung around the planet by impacts and things like that, you'd see, you might see something in the in, in the ice layers in the in the North Polar ice cap.
3: Something living or the
4: something frozen,
3: like so many TV dinners.
4: A bit like that. Uh, because if the Martian ice has the microbe content of TV dinners, then we're we're home. We we've won.
3: <laughs> Oliver Morton, thank you so much for talking to us.
4: Great pleasure.
2: Okay, three contenders. Mars has lots of sun and a bit of air, but Enceladus and Europa show good evidence for tons of liquid water. And the winner for the habitat that is home to life off Earth is... We don't know. Nope, we don't. We'll have to wait for future explorations of these nearby worlds. So stay tuned. So here's the deal. These alien microbes, if they're out there, and they probably are, they're dealing with extreme pressure and temperature and even acidic conditions that would make jet fuel seem as innocuous as spring water. They're adaptable.
3: But they don't get all the credit. Look at humans. Humans are supremely nimble in their ability to adapt to any environment.
2: It's true. I mean, we need a few tools, basic shelter, some food storage, a waste disposal system. (laughs) With reliable plumbing, I hope. But with that ingenuity, we've been able to survive and evolve as a species. From our origins in the hot and humid forests of Africa, Africa, to bitterly cold Siberia To the bottom of the ocean Where we build our own habitats called submarines That's right, we can adapt to anything that Earth throws at us Ah, but what if the pitch doesn't come from Earth? It used that Sorry
3: That was on Earth, Gary Right Aliens are the theme of Stephen King's novel Under the Dome Although you don't know it until the end of the book
4: Spoiler alert What follows is a discussion of the plot of Under the Dome, even though Molly already gave some of it away. Nice job. So if you're planning to read the book, turn off your radio and iPods now. Although then you'd miss an awesome interview with Stephen King, so it's your choice.
3: It's extraterrestrials that have captured humans under a dome, like so many hapless pheasants under glass, if anyone even prepares that dish anymore. But these humans are alive, and believe it or not, the aliens are not the most interesting and unsettling characters in this novel. The humans are and what they do to each other when they're cut off from the rest of humanity.
2: Stephen, someone's messing with middle America, or perhaps not exactly middle America, as this story takes place in Maine, upper right side America, I guess you could call it. Tell me what happens out of a clear blue sky.
7: Well, out of a clear blue sky on a day in the fall, a large invisible dome falls down over the small town of Chester's Mill. So that the townspeople are inside and can't get out, and the outside world, although they can see in, can't reach them, so they're pretty much on their own.
2: So a transparent dome comes down over this town, Chester's Mill, like a mammoth upside-down jar. Uh, Now, this dome has a few properties that seem a little different from a real glass jar, though. I mean, it's got these razor-thin walls. Uh, You can also blow wind through it if you really try, and it causes your pacemaker to explode if you get near to it. But otherwise, it's not really all that bizarre, is it? I mean, there's nothing, you know, no hyperdimensional physics here, whatever that means, anything like that. I mean, from the townspeople's point of view, this is not So unusual.
7: Well, when it comes down, uh, there's a woman who's reaching across the... It's not really a dome because it conforms to the outline of this town, which is shaped sort of like an athletic sock. And she happens to be on the very edge of town. And when the dome comes down, she's reaching to pick a vegetable that happens to be across the town line. So she loses her hand. And uh, there are trees that are cut in half and, and birds crash into it, but they learn very quickly to avoid it because they learn the parameters of where it is. But one of the things that I wanted to talk about a little bit was the pollution that starts to smudge this dome. Eventually it becomes visible because stuff starts to collect both on the inside and the outside.
2: This is, in some sense, a sort of supersized biosphere. You remember that artificial habitat down in Arizona, where people were supposed to live inside this sort of glass bubble, but it was enormously smaller than this, and it didn't work. Uh, right. But here, they can, they can live for a while.
7: They can live for a while. How long? Uh, because people are what they are, there are problems with the people inside the town that sort of outgrace the environmental concerns. but. One of the things that I wanted to talk about here was we all live under the dome. We live on a little blue planet that we call Earth. We're surrounded by a very fragile envelope of breathable atmosphere. And beyond that, there's, so far as we know, this is what we've got. The resources that we have are what we've got, and the environment is what we've got. And so we're all basically in that situation. I just wanted to create a microcosm and see what would
2: happen it was quite interesting to me to see that at the beginning, and maybe this is analogous to the kind of reaction we're seeing when it comes to confronting whatever we're doing to the environment, people just consider this a somewhat of an inconvenience. Yes, some people are sliced up at the beginning when the dome comes down, but for the rest, they seem intent on you know taking care of whatever it was they were worried about the previous week. There's no immediate panic. I, I suppose people think that this is just a problem that's going to go away, you know, maybe in the next hour, maybe in the next day. They're, they they continue to use up their food, their, their fuel, everything else.
7: Sure. I think we all feel that way. One of the things that a female character says near the beginning is, thank God we live in Maine. We have plenty of wood. We can burn wood in our wood stoves if it gets to be winter. But the thing is, wood is full of carcinogens. Uh, it's fine enough if you can vent uh, bend- to the actual atmosphere and the, the wind takes it away. But in a closed environment, it's very bad. There's carbon monoxide. Of course, there are only so many um, sources of fuel inside this town, as there are only so many sources of fuel on the earth. And with a small population, there are about 2,000 people. All of these things would last for a while. And for the purposes of my book, because I didn't want this thing to go on for years. It would take years for it to play out to its inevitable conclusion. I sped things up a little bit in terms of what's going on inside the town so the resources don't become a critical element of the story. But at the same time, I think we all understand that our resources here are limited, too.
2: Steven uh, Stephen... You used aliens in here. Even though this bears some relationship in an allegorical sort of way to our own treatment of of the Earth's environment, why did you choose aliens? Why aliens? It seems it's sort of Lord of the Flies with an alien bell jar here.
7: Well, in the end, you have to explain what happened if you're going to give readers some satisfaction and some sense of closure. And as far as aliens, uh, the right aliens might have the technology to make this thing work. But also, again, you have to look at the actual situation that we find ourselves in. We're on a planet called Earth. We're somewhere in the Milky Way galaxy. There's a huge, huge universe beyond us that so far as we've been able to tell so far is dark and alien and lifeless. There's us. And who put us here? Well, it depends. Is it just an accident? Could be. I'm not going to argue for the theological side, but if you do argue for the theological side, then you say, God put us here. He put us on a limited world, and let's see what happens to you guys. And if God isn't the ultimate alien, first cause, then I don't know what is.
2: Yeah, well, it seems that in the book, the ultimate aliens are just some kids having what they consider innocent fun at our expense. We're just And
7: sometimes when you look at the world and the situation, couldn't you say that that seems to be the case, given all the senseless violence and... Uh, All the selfishness and greed that that if there is a first cause, is pretty prankish and, and maybe not exactly nice.
3: Hold on to your disbelief. We'll continue with Stephen King, Seth and Aliens in a moment. It's Are We Alone?
6: Are you looking for a podcast that your whole family can enjoy that asks the deep
4: philosophical questions like, do trees fart?
0: If you are, then you'll love Tumble, a science podcast for kids.
3: Are We Alone resumes as author Stephen King tells Seth why, in his novel, Under the Dome, he made the alien observers of Earth alien
7: children. Children make this assumption that they're real, but the creatures that they see around them are not. So you'll see kids in schools that will trap flies and pull the wings off them, or they'll get a magnifying glass and burn up ants, which is the story that, that's told in, in Under the Dome. And uh, we don't have a tendency to see that. We say to ourselves, well, they're just children. They'll grow out of that. And mostly they do. And at some point you come to a higher realization that life is life and that all life has its value. But you can't expect children to understand that until they're old enough to reason.
2: This sounds like a somewhat ironic commentary on the usual uh, aliens of fiction who are mostly super powerful. Of course, here they're, they're able to put a dome down on our planet. So that's, you know, that's, that's quite a trick there. But, you know, the, the usual aliens are sailing our skies in their saucers. They're smooth, emotionally reticent intellects that are vast and cool, to paraphrase H.G. Wells. I've never heard of the aliens being small kids. This is a whole new, whole new take.
7: I I saw it as uh, a fertile area to talk about aliens that were so advanced that their children play with other worlds. And uh, I like that, but as far as the more popular concept of flying saucers visiting Earth or scoping out Earth, really, if there are other species out there, I wouldn't want to have anything to do with us, would you? (laughs)
2: Well, it's been said, I think Stephen Hawking made this point uh, not too long ago, that if the aliens actually came here, you know, he'd get out of the way.
7: Well, not only that, but we've got these listening posts where we're sending out radio messages that basically say, if you're there, please answer. And I can imagine advanced alien races deep in the galaxy saying, those crazy people are calling again. Whatever you do, don't pick up the phone.
2: (laughs) Maybe that's why uh, our SETI experiments haven't picked them up yet, Dave. (laughs) <laughs> They're reluctant to get in touch with us. We, we well, don't seem to measure up. would you take a up.
7: phone call from a crazy person? I wouldn't if I, didn't, if I knew. Yeah. To an alien species, I think we'd look a little bit like Leper Island.
2: <laughs> well, that could be, but do you think it was ever any better? I mean, people say, you know, we're destroying the environment. We threaten one another with, you know, massive weapons and this, that, and the other, and we are really bad kids. But, you know, if somehow the aliens could have paid attention to the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago, they weren't such nice guys either. I mean, maybe no, this... they
7: they weren't, but they didn't have the sort of technological crowbars that we have, and uh, on the whole, I'm not terribly hopeful. I, I think that probably we're going to turn out to be a evolutionary blind alley. Too much brains, not enough moral compass to really survive uh, over the millennia, but I'm not too worried because the cockroaches will still be here, and sooner or later, I agree with George R. Stewart, who said Earth abides. Eventually, there'll be another experiment, and it may be better than us.
2: Stephen King, thank you so much for talking with me.
7: Thank you.
3: If you want more Stephen King, you'll find him, or at least his writing, in countless novels, including the subject of this discussion Under the Dome.
2: The waves of the Pacific Ocean roll across the beaches of California. By every reckoning, the world's biggest ocean, it's about 170 million square kilometers. But it's not really an ocean. I mean, rather, it's part of a continuum of seawater that winds around the world. Two-thirds of our planet is covered with water, after all.
3: The Arctic Ocean meets the Pacific Ocean north of here, north of California, and as you go down this coast, it becomes the South Pacific, which connects with the Atlantic, and then the Indian, and then the Southern Ocean.
2: The world's oceans are home to 60% of the planet's fish and total nearly 50% of all species on Earth. That means crabs, clams, mussels, sea cucumbers, manatees, coral reefs, and many other species we undoubtedly have left to discover.
3: But could such a vast habitat be represented by... an aquarium? The Georgia Aquarium is in downtown Atlanta. It holds 8 million gallons of water. 6 million of that is seawater. And it's an example of a movement towards supersized aquariums.
2: Well, aquariums are hypnotic places, standing in a room lit only by the soft blue glow of the water, illuminated from above. Enormous creatures with pinched heads, thick bellies, curved backs languidly drift by. Occasionally there's a flurry of movement as one large fish chases another. It's an amazing opportunity to see bluefin, tuna, whale sharks, and stingrays up close.
3: But to create these habitats, aquariums are becoming more ambitious. They're becoming more lifelike. Huge volumes of water, real coral reef systems, and all the fish and marine creatures
2: that make up that marine ecosystem. They replicate in such exquisite detail the natural marine environments, they've prompted speculation that mega-aquariums, these giant artificial habitats, might be substitutions for caring for the real thing.
3: Only it's not the real thing. Even the size of a mega-aquarium can not approach the depth of the real ocean. Whale sharks, for example, dive to 3,000 feet.
2: In the last few years, two whale sharks have died in captivity at the Georgia Aquarium, and this is not to single out that particular aquarium. It's just the world's largest. There are others in Japan, Genoa. The question is, could these artificial habitats replace the real oceans? No, they'll actually help save them, says John Fraser, the director for the Institute for Learning Innovations in New York.
1: If you go back to 1900, the theory was we shouldn't have gorillas in zoos either, and it just took a while to learn how to house these animals. I think with sharks in particular, I mean, whale sharks are pretty big, but... Aquariums have a long track record of housing sharks, and we've learned how to manage them in captivity. Really, nobody had a large enough tank until the Georgia Aquarium opened to work with an animal like the whale shark.
3: But even in the case of this aquarium, these whale sharks dive down to something like 3,000 feet, which is incredible. And even a tank this massive couldn't accommodate them. That may or may not be what contributed to the death. I don't know, but we weren't able to replicate its habitat in the ocean.
1: Well, that's right. We don't replicate the habitats that animals have in the ocean in aquariums. The idea that we can create an aquarium that replicates nature is an erroneous idea. When you think about an aquarium or a zoo, it's a microcosm in some ways of social life, but it's a completely different social life, a different kind of life for animals. So, you know, every animal, as soon as you move it into a facility, whether it's an aquarium, whether it's cattle in a barnyard, we're really looking at constrained space limits. But when we did this in zoos with lions, there was this whole period in the 70s and 80s when they started to create massive habitats for lions. And lions pretty much said, why bother? The food's delivered. So, there's, you know, they don't need the space. What we need to do is look at what does the animal need in captivity to live a fit and full life, not only physically, but also for its mental processes.
3: What is the argument then for holding animals in captivity at all, whether it's in zoos or uh, in, in an aquarium?
1: Well, in an aquarium, I think if you look at any of the major books on animal natural history, you find the majority of the ground-truthing on what it is they need to survive was done in zoos and aquariums. That research really comes from creating conditions where the animal can live naturally. It's not done in the field. You just can't do these kind of studies. I mean, only recently have we been able to radio track sharks and figure out where they go and how far they travel and how deep they dive. I mean, this is really relatively new research, but we don't know things about them over their life course. We can only do short windows in field research. You see an animal and then the animal's gone. You track an animal for a short time and then it's gone. In a zoo or an aquarium, you have that animal in its social constructs. You have relationships that you can look at. You've got its life cycle over time.
3: So the strongest argument from your point of view is that we can examine and study these animals more closely.
1: Well, I don't think that's the only argument. That is one argument when it talks about the choice of a specific animal, a species that we want to look at. When you get into what an aquarium does or a zoo, now you've got a public dimension as well. And I think that's a completely different argument. So zoos and aquariums live in two worlds. They have a foot in the research world. They have a foot in public education and public awareness.
3: But why is it important then to see animals alive and up close, other than it may be entertaining or it's amusing or we get a warm feeling when we see these animals, and they're fascinating creatures.
1: But the fascination isn't amusement. The fascination is really learning from looking. When you watch a fish gaze into your eye, when you watch it follow you, you know that you're looking at another life form that can think. You're looking at an animal that has the capacity to relate to the world around it in the same ways you do. And, you know, we see this in kids. We see this in elderly people. We see it in middle-aged adults who are distracted for a moment from their iPod. You know, they look at these animals and they see a way of living. And that's a whole new way of understanding an animal.
3: Although sometimes I see these animals and they look sad or they look sort of depressed. I'm thinking of some bears that I've seen at different zoos where they're just sort of sitting there. Mm-hmm. Um, and your impulse is to want to let them be free.
1: That's a great impulse. But I, I would ask you, would you ever have that kind of emotional experience if you saw it stuffed in a museum? Would you ever have that experience if you saw it on your plate?
3: What is the role in public interaction with these animals and conservation and protection of some species that are disappearing.
1: Recently, the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species was pushing for listing red and pink coral as an appendix one, one of the highest categories of restriction on coral. That didn't succeed because of commercial interests. These animals are in danger. These animals are really in trouble. And frankly, they're being yanked out of the ocean by dragging Yet aquariums were right there at the table saying that these species need to be listed because people don't think about them. If you don't see them in an aquarium, you just don't think about them. And yet when people see corals in aquaria, they start to get their head around how these animals look, how they live, the way they live, what their process is. They're not seen as decoration. In fact, I remember talking to another psychologist and explaining to him that corals are animals, that anemones are animals, not plants, and that was a shock to him.
3: So the argument that by being so sophisticated, by putting in the coral and all these different animals and blue-legged hermit crabs and peppermint shrimp and all the creatures that need to interact with each other, that the public does not then come to believe that the real oceans don't matter.
1: That's right. In fact, we find the opposite. What we find is as people start to develop a more complex understanding of how systems are related, the more likely they are to develop caring but also help them shape some kind of personal action that they can be involved with.
3: Can you give me an example? What can someone do?
1: Well, to start with, I think we were on the coral argument, and you can certainly stop buying coral. In fact, we need to be talking to those industries that are supporting coral dredging about stopping. Absolutely, we need to talk with legislators about that. That's the basic, but just understanding that you are looking at coral not as jewelry, but as death. That is the death of our oceans, and the problems we're having with maintaining coral reefs is sitting there in a jewelry store. So, you know, people can do something about that right off. You choose not to buy, you choose not to patronize those stores, and you certainly talk to other people about it.
3: On this idea of encouraging the public to appreciate these animals, Uh, in some cases, for example, with dolphins, scientists and also conservation specialists have gone one step further because some of these animals, when they're presented to us, they are presented as entertainment value. We look at them in the case of dolphins, they jump through hoops and, and so forth. But there's been some talk about creating facilities that do more than just showing their ability to do tricks for us, but actually include exhibits on their intelligence so we really understand just how profound the intelligence of some of these creatures are and and what we don't know about them. And dolphins is one example.
1: Well, I'll tell you that one of the things we found from our research was that, The more people understand how dolphins think, the understanding of the complexity of their animal mind, the more likely they are to consider their fate in the wild. We know that understanding dolphins is a complicated idea. Not everybody is ready. To understand that these animals can actually use symbols and translate them into meaningful structures and ask for things and communicate back and forth with the people who are working with them. I mean they are not just trained like dogs and often people think of dolphins like dogs because of what they see in some of the shows. What we've been doing in the aquarium community is trying to help people working with these dolphins understand that if you talk about how they communicate among themselves, if you talk about the complexity of challenges that they face and how they address them over time, people start to develop a much stronger connection to what goes on in those animals' lives and how they are affected by people.
3: But isn't it then, if you believe that animals have mind and they may be conscious and they're more intelligent than we thought, that then they deserve liberty and their own freedom, the the way that we'd want to give it to humans?
1: I would argue that they deserve the right to be able to live within their capacity. A jelly doesn't have a brain, and then bees have some loosely organized ganglia. But when we think about bee welfare and bee health, we need to think about the hive as much as the individual. We need to live on their terms and think on their terms. I'm not arguing everything deserves liberty, because liberty is an undefined concept. What everything deserves is the right to live to its fullest within its capacity and within its perceptual world. And certainly we all live together. I live in a constrained world. You live in a constrained world. I don't have the liberty to do what I want because we have social conventions. I would argue that we can support these animals in aquariums and zoos and still acknowledge their minds in a much more responsible way as people. We owe them the compassion to give them a life that they deserve.
3: Thank you very much, John Fraser. Thank you for talking to us.
1: Oh, thanks for having me on the air.
2: John Fraser is the director for the Institute for Learning Innovations and adjunct assistant professor at Hunter College, City University, New York. And that's it for our show. We thank Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Jay Weiler for their help with the program. Also, the NASA Astrobiology Institute and the SETI Institute. We're looking for life elsewhere in the universe, requires some thought as to where it might be.
3: Seth, um, these ants are not special. Hybrid ants, or the normal ants, right? Well, yeah,
2: I th- I I think they are. Yeah, uh, have, have you checked this ant farm recently? Come here, well, take no, a look I, at this. Yeah, what? Wait, hold it. They they seem to have formed a pattern. Yeah. Wait a minute, look at that pattern. That looks like the letters F, R, E, E, U, S, O, R, E, L, S, and that's where it ends.